I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Mariana Vieira, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. It's great to have you with us. And I'm joined now for her second episode by my colleague Mariana. How are you doing, Mariana? I'm good, Ben. How are you? Pretty well, thank you. Looking forward to Easter. But there's a lot to do in these last sort of three days before the break. But I'm looking forward to having a long weekend for sure. How about you? How's everything with the World Today magazine? I mean, I'm glad you mentioned how much there is to do in these days before uh, the Easter break, because we are putting out the next issue of the magazine. So it'll be the April-May issue comes out so that our readers have some Easter reading to catch up on. It is actually also the last issue that the current editor, Alan Phillips, will be putting out. So it's an extra special one. Our cover story is a bit different than usual, looks at five different cities in the post-COVID world. So that's a little sneak peek for you. And yeah, look out for that. Nice. And um, everybody should look out for the interview that I've written for this issue of the magazine as well. Not to self-promote too shamelessly, (laughs) but I don't get the opportunity very often. So, (laughs) But on to this episode, I suppose. Mariana, why don't you tell us a bit about who you spoke to this week? Right. So this week I had a chat with Kiran Nazish. She's an independent journalist and the founding director of the Coalition for Women in Journalism. She reports on uh, South Asia and the Middle East, and she's also held a teaching position in India on covering conflict and international journalism, which is pretty interesting. So we had a very insightful and quite broad conversation, which started with her two decades as a wartime correspondent and how her experience and the issues that women face as journalists inspire the creation of the coalition as an organization. So we managed to touch upon the work of the coalition as a starting point for discussing different countries and the state of press freedom. Specifically, we looked at Turkey and the US. We also talked about the invisibility of women journalists and how they have to navigate the industry, which sometimes ends up encroaching on their press freedom across the world. What about you, Ben? Who was your interview with? So my interview is with the award-winning science journalist, Angela Saini. So we're going double journalism this week. Angela has written several books and writes often about the intersection of politics and science and social issues around science, including, obviously, the problems of gender discrimination and racism. And we had a big, wide-ranging conversation all about how the public has handled the COVID-19 pandemic and the various debates that have gone on about how well society in the UK at least understands science. So yeah, let's have a listen. So now I'm joined by Angela Saini. Angela is an award-winning science journalist, author and broadcaster. She presents radio and TV programmes for the BBC and her writing has appeared across the world, including in New Scientist, Prospects, Sunday Times and the National Geographic. In 2020, Angela was named one of the world's top 50 thinkers by Prospect magazine, which is amazing. Congratulations. (laughs) And in her new podcast series, which is titled Looking Glass, produced by the Institute of Physics, Angela interviews expert guests to explore how science needs to change to become fairer, 
more reliable and more representative in the future. So Angela, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we're sitting here in our respective homes, waiting for the gradual lifting of the third COVID-19 lockdown in the UK. And it feels like everyone I speak to from my grandma to the guy who delivers the post is speaking about our numbers and herd immunity and comparing different versions of the statistics. I just wondered to begin whether you could give us your reflections on what you think the pandemic has revealed about public understanding of science. I think for a very long time, the science journalism community in the UK is fairly small. I sit on the board of the Association of British Science Writers, so I know how small it is, <laughs> like we pretty much all know each other. And I think for a long time, the media has treated science as a nice to have, you know, it's kind of on the back pages, it's about new discoveries, it's kind of fun and and not very serious. And I think what the last year has revealed to us is how important it is to have good quality, thorough, interrogative science reporting. I think sometimes the public imagines, and certainly I even imagined when I was younger, when I was studying engineering at university, that science is a set of facts and you learn the facts. And when scientists publish a paper, that is a kind of unvarnished truth now that can go out into the world. And of course, it's not like that. These ideas evolve with time and with data, number one, and they're always contested, number two. So this is why scientists have sometimes disagreed over the last year over different kinds of treatments, who those treatments should be given to. Even right now, as we're speaking, different countries have different rules around who should be given the certain vaccines. There's a debate going on over one of the vaccines, whether it should be given to older people or not. And that's because we don't have a full understanding of exactly how different drugs play out in different individuals. It's very complex. We are very complex creatures. And whenever you're talking about health and medicine, it's a level of complexity that you will never, ever get to any clear cut answer because every single person is different. And I think that's what we've been grappling with the last year is how to navigate that uncertainty when you need answers in order to decide how to respond as a state and as a government. And a lot of those discussions have been happening behind closed doors in the SAGE committees and among ministers. We haven't been party to them, so we don't know what evidence they're relying on and why they're giving certain weight to one thing rather than another. And that opaqueness, if you like, is part of the problem here that we just <laughs> we just have to take people's word for it. And it's mm. very difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously, people are very quick to criticise politicians. And there's a lot we can say about the decisions that have been made over the past year or so. But it does strike me that it's a real challenge to sort of be able to respond in a crisis and give people kind of reassurance that someone is in control and someone knows what's going on when mm. even the data and the, the picture that you're getting from the science is evolving all the time. Do you think that having said that, <laughs> do you think that it's been helpful for the government to so often refer to following the science when we're having these public debates? Because as you say, like, what is the science? You know, <laughs> there's not one just no. immutable set of facts, but does that sort of give a kind of false confidence to the public, do you think? I think it actually undermines the public's confidence in scientists because 
different scientists say different things and the science isn't clear. So following the science doesn't really make much sense then. A, a more reliable way of putting it would be we are looking at the science and then assessing the best possible course of actions based on the data that we have, which yeah. I know isn't as snappy, <laughs> but, but at least it would be more accurate. It would, it would more accurately describe what the government has been doing. Because otherwise, how do you explain different governments doing different things? It's, they're all following the science, aren't they? They're not all disregarding it. And, you know, historically, we know that politicians sometimes cherry pick the scientists who say the things they want to say. We saw that happen, for example, with climate change denial, that depending on your political persuasion, you can pick a scientist who may take a view that suits your politics. And I mean, people have done that also during the pandemic in the last year. So, yeah, I don't think it's a very helpful way of talking about it. But I think the reason politicians do this is because to outsiders, when you say that, it feels as though you're basing your decisions on something rational and fixed. Because we think of science as being rational and fixed, we don't think of it as having as much uncertainty as it actually does. Maybe as a follow-up, and I don't want you to throw any of your colleagues under the bus with this one, <laughs> yeah. but I just wondered whether the pandemic has also revealed some interesting things about the science literacy of the media as well. I mean, you sit mm. in these COVID briefings and mm. some of the questions that are put to our leaders are often um, maybe not the most helpful ones. Do you think there are lessons we can learn for future crises in that sense? Possibly. I mean, we did, so the Association of British Science Writers at our last conference, we held a panel debate with editors who weren't science trained. They were just editors from broadcast and media outlets, prominent ones. And what was interesting was that each of them said that if they could go back and cover COVID differently over the summer, so this was near the end of last year, we were having this debate, and they said if they could do anything differently, it would to not take any one scientist's word for it anymore. So very often newspapers were reporting or outlets were reporting quite faithfully what the scientists were saying without really interrogating it and asking, actually, where does this data come from? What about this contradictory data? Do you need more time before you can judge the efficacy of this? For example, on mask wearing, you know, there was a long period of time where there was a lot of conflicting messages from public health bodies around the usefulness of mask wearing. And it would have been helpful for the public to have had some understanding of why that landscape was as mixed as it was rather than people trying to give definitive answers when we clearly didn't have them we didn't have good data or information about how the virus spread at that point and that's why there was all this uncertainty around mask wearing not to mention the fact that some of the advice that was being given by public health bodies was also informed by the fact that they knew that the supplies of masks were low and they didn't want everybody to grab them when they were needed in frontline situations. So there was a politics and science playing out there, plus a lack of data. And you can't have definitive scientific answers in a situation like that. But sometimes, I think journalists did sometimes behave as though when the WHO said something, that was the last word on the subject, yeah. when even the WHO knew that it wasn't the last <laughs> word on the subject. So that was quite heartening to hear in that panel discussion that they saw science increasingly as a beat the way I regard it as a journalist I see it as a beat in the same way that would cover politics I would never dream of interviewing a politician who makes a claim and then not challenge the claim or see if there's a counterclaim or interrogating in some way and I think we need to do the same with science not every time but certainly in things like this when there's a pandemic and it has 
economic or social repercussions, then we have to understand why that scientist is saying what they're saying. I just wondered, looking ahead to future crises and if slash when we're sort of out of this one, do you think that there needs to be some kind of discussion about how we teach science and how we can do that better, not even just in schools, but how can you improve science communication and science education among the adult Mm. population as well? Do you have any reflections on, on how we could do that better? Well, one thing I've been lobbying for the last year is to incorporate social sciences, uh, humanities and history into science teaching. I would love it if every time we learned a scientific concept, we learned the history of that concept, because when you do that, you understand sometimes how contested ideas were at the time, Mm. the debates around them, uh, the controversies around them. You know, there are certain ideas that I think are deeply flawed that haven't died even to this day because we don't have that contextualized understanding of how those ideas developed so I certainly think that would help I don't know if it's feasible because it's a lot of extra work obviously on top of what we already have to learn and you know having gone through the science education process all the way through university myself there is a lot to learn anyway even just learning the facts and the numbers and the stats is enough but I think it would help mitigate some of the problems that we sometimes see within the scientific establishment, even to this day. You know, I'm shocked at how many senior scientists I meet who don't even know the histories of their own fields. And that is really problematic. I wonder maybe if this is a good way into speaking about your latest book called Superior, The Return of Race Science. And it sort of debunks attempts to portray racial and caste differences as based in biological fact. But do you also go a bit into the histories of race science and how that as a discipline kind of developed exactly as you're advocating for understanding that history? Could you maybe explain a a bit more about the sort of premise behind your book and, and what argument you were making there? Well, there have been quite a few books written over a number of decades by geneticists looking at race and why it has no genetic basis you know these racial categories that we use and by that I mean these very big color-coded black white red yellow brown racial categories have next to no correlation with real biological difference so it's very easy to debunk from genetic point of view but the problem is that the limitation of that kind of analysis while it's useful because it does puncture the idea that race is real the problem is then people are left asking them why do we keep using it why do we still think in these ways why is it so prevalent and why do scientists and doctors keep using these categories then you know why is it that your doctor tells you that if you're black you need a different hypertension drug for instance which is the case at the moment so what you need to do is understand the history around this, the social context, the politics around it, and understand that scientists are embedded within these political contexts. So the reason that these categories were drawn up the way they were, the reason that they landed on skin colour rather than some other arbitrary physical characteristic or geographical characteristic is because of the time and place. It was the European Enlightenment. It was at the birth of modern Western science mm. that People looked at the world around them, Western scientists looked at the world around them, and they were informed by the hierarchies and colonialism and slavery and everything else that was around them. And that shaped the way they thought about human difference. So at a point where they had very little information about who we really were underneath, what human nature really was, 
you know, certainly no kind of molecular data about what we were like underneath. They were coming up with these quite crude measures. But the reason those things survived when they shouldn't have, really, they should have been debunked fairly quickly. They could have been debunked very quickly because they were recognized as arbitrary even at the time. There were scientists disagreed over these categories. Yeah. And the reason they survived is because they served politics they served the world and the way it was built and when you naturalize human inequality in that way then you give it a power that it didn't have before and you see this dynamic play out all over the world so not just with regards to white supremacy but also in every form of ethnic nationalism or religious nationalism some kind of claim you know these nationalistic origin stories all make these kind of biological natural claims to dominance do you worry that we're sort of seeing these myths perpetuated even in the response to COVID-19? I mean, I've been reading, there's all sorts of studies already kind of proliferating about the unequal impacts of COVID-19 on different sections of the population. Are you worried that there's a danger that we'll learn the wrong lessons from those facts and we'll assume that it's about some kind of perception of biological difference where actually these differences are very much rooted in kind of social structures mm-hmm. and, and economic inequality? I think we've already fallen into that trap, if I'm honest. I mean, I was shocked in March, April 2020 to see prominent medical researchers and physicians start to speculate about whether the racial disparities in COVID outcomes they were seeing were genetic. And that was already right at the beginning, before we had any kind of data. Mm. And that kind of laziness in jumping to those kind of conclusions, I think, speaks to the fact that in this society at least, the idea that race is real still bubbles under the surface, even though for 70 years we've been reminded that race is a social construct. You know, genetics doesn't say anything contrary to that. And yet people were still making these claims. It took a long time to claw that narrative back. I remember in summer last year, I was asked to write an essay for The Lancet. So I've been quite careful not to write random op-eds everywhere on this subject. And I chose The Lancet specifically because I wanted to target doctors here because I think doctors within the medical communities, you see these myths proliferate and then that is how it leaches out into the public domain, particularly because you trust your doctor. They are the face of science to most everyday people. So when I wrote this essay for The Lancet, just reminding them of the risk of invoking a biological idea of race when we see racial disparities there was quite a bit of pushback at the time from the Lancet as well they were very reluctant to accept what I was saying which was quite surprising to me because I wasn't saying anything that wasn't quite established in the literature already (laughs) you know it was quite clear clear there in the literature but interestingly what changed things what actually swung everything around was the George Floyd murder so when that happened And the public started having a debate around racial disparities in society, not just in the US, but everywhere. Everyone changed their tune. Suddenly, scientists and doctors were getting in touch with me saying, you're absolutely right. We should be looking at the social determinants of health. It is all these other demographic, geographic, structural factors that lead to the stats that we're seeing. It's nonsensical to think about race in this way. And if that doesn't show you that's science is affected by politics and I don't really know what does you know the science didn't change last year (laughs) the politics did in the middle of the summer and suddenly that swung everything around and that's when this 
narrative that I was trying to kind of remind everybody of actually it was an open door after that it was quite easy and then the Lancet invited me to be on the COVID-19 commission after that so it's been I'm, I'm glad that we managed to claw it back to be honest because I was quite worried there for a while about the way it was going but still I see signs of it so even just today I was listening to Radio 4 in the morning and they were saying that There was a press release about researchers wanting more ethnic minorities to take part in vaccine trials. And on the surface, yes, we do need more diversity and representation in clinical trials, because like Mm. I said, on an individual level, we are very, very different. And that is what causes most of the adverse drug reactions that we see. It's because I am different from my sister, my sister is different from her best friend, and so on. You know, for example, I'm allergic to penicillin. Neither of my other two sisters are allergic to penicillin. So it has nothing to do with race (laughs) everything to do with the fact that each of us are individually different most drugs don't work in everybody because of that individual difference group difference is marginal when it comes to these differences that you see in adverse drug reactions so it is important to have a broad swathe of people but to suggest that ethnic minorities in particular (laughs) if they don't come forward which is slightly the implication i see Mm. in Mm. some of the ways in which this is phrased that if ethnic minorities don't come forward then these drugs won't work in you (laughs) it's just ridiculous it's just nonsense a drug tested in white people will work on everybody that doesn't mean we should only test drugs on white people but we are not that different genetically Mm. as a group It is the individual difference that we need to take count of. And I don't think that researchers communicate that effectively enough. And what they do when they don't communicate that effectively enough, what they unintentionally do is reinforce in the public imagination the idea that race is biologically real. So I've also had people of colour say to me, is it safe for me to take a vaccine if it hasn't been tested on black people? And I have to remind them, yes, of course it's safe (laughs) to take. It doesn't matter who it's been tested on. Mm. As long as it's been tested on a lot of people, you're fine. And it has, so you're okay. But, you know, when you've been getting this message for the last year from scientists sometimes that there are some kind of genetic differences that are so profound that they will affect your susceptibility to this virus, then what else are you going to think? you are going to think that that's a possibility. So I don't think scientists or researchers always realise the unintended consequences of what they're saying. Sure. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, there's also something sort of weirdly victim shamey about that whole kind of vaccine hesitancy debate, isn't there as well? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like... Yeah, how, how dare you? <laughs> it's yeah. all your fault. <laughs> You're ruining it for everybody. But there are legitimate reasons. I mean, I've, I do a lot of work around misinformation, disinformation. In fact, I made a documentary before the pandemic called The Misinformation Virus, looking at Mm. vaccine hesitancy. And every vaccine hesitant person, I think, is vaccine hesitant in their own way. They each have their own reasons. For some of them, it is because they've bought into these online conspiracy theories or they've been shared something, they've read something on a WhatsApp group. But for some, it's because they've had a bad encounter with a doctor or a doctor has misprescribed something or they weren't treated very well in the hospital. It can be so many different things. And we have to be cautious about assuming that all ethnic minorities, every single one of us, think in exactly the same way. And if if a large proportion of us aren't taking the vaccine, there must be one simple reason for it. There isn't. Uh, Just coming back to the debates over the murder of George Floyd and and the conversation that that catalyzed last year, I just wanted you mentioned there how actually, albeit people were slow to respond, there was eventually a response and the conversation changed for political reasons. I suppose my question is, do you feel 
confident that we're going to be able to sustain that change because I'm just reflecting obviously at at the moment we we had a, a recent episode that spoke about the teaching of national history and the debate that is going on at the moment about freedom of speech and cultural heritage and how academics should be teaching a positive version of British history and we shouldn't be being negative about the empire and all of this stuff and it it feels somewhat regressive it feels like we're going back (laughs) sometime into the 20th century and I can't quite believe what I'm reading so I suppose I I don't want to be a real downer or a pessimist here but Mm. but do you think there's a danger that we're we're going to have had that George Floyd moment and then assume that okay we don't need to keep sort of pushing (laughs) those lessons through we (laughs) can go back to thinking about Sunlit Uplands and colonial legacies and all of that. (laughs) It's funny because even before last summer, I think so much work was being done around reframing history, not least because academia is diversifying. You know, there are so many people from different backgrounds coming into universities, which is a good thing. Mm. And they obviously have different perspectives and they are questioning some of these histories in the way that they've been presented, which is what academia should be doing. You know, that is exactly, Mm. (laughs) exactly right. But I do feel that what has happened since the toppling of the Colston statue in Bristol, which is a one-off to be fair, it's not as though people are toppling statues everywhere. That was an isolated instant born out of anger and legitimate frustration Mm. because that debate even in Bristol had been happening for years. It's not as though it just started last summer. And you have to put yourself in the shoes of people who live in a city and have to walk past a memorial to a slave owner every single day and feel part of that city and feel part of its legacy. That is not an easy thing. We should care about people's feelings. That's what memorials are for. They're to commemorate, to make us feel proud and to help us buy into the values of a place or a country. And if you look at a statue and you don't feel that, then you have to ask what the value of that object is. But that aside, I think what has happened is in some ways a phony culture war. I don't think, I work with a number of museums and cultural institutions, scientific Mm. institutions. Mm. And so I know the debates are happening behind the scenes here. In fact, I'm part of some of the debates happening behind the scenes. And I know that there's absolutely no rush at all to move statues or take down things that if there's any renaming done it's very subtle and very slow and it's done in a very careful way and usually it's because renaming is done anyway you know things are renamed all the time nothing stays static in a university or in a museum anyway you have to move things around in order to make good use of your collections for for no other reasons so I think some of it has been whipped up by people perhaps for ideological reasons. I'm struggling to understand why they would do this because I don't see the value in pushing what is essentially propaganda about Britain at a time when you can just go on the internet and learn all these things anyway. I mean, how do you maintain these fictions in an internet age or in a social media age? What do they imagine people will do? You know, you can go into schools, you can teach whatever you want, but a child can just go online and and get the full story for themselves. So you're right, it does feel regressive in a way, but it also feels pointless in a way to attempt to present a narrow version of British history. The more honest we are with our children and with our adults in the way that we present history, the better, because if you aren't, then they're just going to trust you less. They're going to feel that you're up to something. You're concealing something from them. And the only reason that you would conceal history or deny someone a full history is because you're trying to push a certain agenda. And people see through that. Mm. and they just see through it 
I am conscious of time. So, so I've just got one more question that I wanted to cover, really. I mentioned at the top of this interview that you've been producing a new podcast series called Looking Glass. Broadly speaking, it's looking at the ways that science needs to sort of change or become more representative. I just wondered if you had any key takeaways from the conversations you've had so far or any particular sort of messages from that that maybe surprised you, something that you hadn't really thought about before you had those conversations? I mean, I've been working on this issue of bias within science for many years now. And I do think what is promising is that there are so many people also looking at this question. You know, so it's very difficult, I think, for new technologies to be developed now without people critiquing them from lots of different angles and saying, how does this serve the populations you're trying to serve? Does it uh, have any ethical issues or privacy issues with it? So there are so many networks of academics and researchers now who are looking at these different questions. So that's really reassuring. One of the episodes in the podcast series looks at Indigenous knowledge. And I requested that particularly. It wasn't going to be there at the beginning, but I requested it because I do feel that if we're going to meet the challenges of the 21st century, then we have to move out of the intellectual silos that we're in. So there are certain assumptions that have existed in science for a very long time that have shaped the way, for example, that we think about human difference that actually don't exist in other cultures. So if we can draw from other knowledge systems and challenge the way that we think about these things, then maybe we'll have new insights then. So, for example, around sex difference. You know, in Western science, there has been, although this is breaking down now, but there has been for hundreds of years, an assumption that there are two sexes is a very clear binary. Everything else is an aberration. And this is just how it is. And actually, that idea is challenged by other thought systems. And as it's also being challenged in Western systems now, we can see sex and gender in a far more complex way that actually maps onto real life human variation in a more reliable and meaningful way. So there are, you know, in lots of different ways, for example, the wildfires that we saw in California and in Australia over the last Mm. couple of years, there are indigenous systems of land management, which have been around sometimes for tens of thousands of years, certainly for thousands of years, that can really inform the way that we look after the land and make it sustainable for Mm. many, many generations. And those systems have been overlooked for a long time because of this hegemony of Western science and this idea that Western science knows best, that this is empirical and everything else is catching up. Well, actually, that's not necessarily how it always works. So I think it's good that those conversations are happening. I think they could happen faster (laughs) and people could be a bit more humble and receptive to all these different points of view, but it is happening. So that's great. Absolutely. Oh, well, Thank you for pushing those conversations forward. And and thanks for joining me today, Angela. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay, so I'm joined by Kiran Nazish, who is an independent journalist and the founding director of the Coalition for Women in Journalism. So Kiran, I thought we would start by looking at the field of journalism, a bit like wearing your white coat and as a doctor diagnosing the industry. So 40 years ago, women working as a foreign correspondent would be more of an exception rather than the norm. And you've spent the last two decades working as a journalist. How would you diagnose the field of journalism in making space for the inclusion and safety of women? 
Thank you, Mariana. Thank you for having me. And thank you for that incredible question. It is true that there were fewer women covering 40 years ago, but I do want to point out that even during World War II, during the Vietnam War, a lot of the big events that have happened in the last five decades, I would say that women were there and they were on the front lines covering different conflicts, different important events around the world. Um, They were not seen and celebrated as much as women are seen, at least seen. I don't know if we are celebrated as much anyway, even now. But a lot has changed over the years. When I entered journalism and eventually foreign correspondence is almost two decades ago, as a reporter in the, the industry, there were fewer women in the newsroom. And I think that when I started doing um, reporting on the ground, on the front lines, covering Afghanistan, uh, FATA, these regions, I was oftentimes the only woman reporter, especially in Pakistan in the tribal areas, I was the only female reporter going into some of these places. And uh, for a lot of women foreign correspondents, you know, at least a decade or so ago, they were the only ones, you know, on the front line. And the context was missing not only for women journalists, but also for the industry. I think that we were not that there were a few of us. I think that the industry also did not have a system to accommodate and understand our needs. And I think that eventually in my career, that is something that I learned over and over. I saw over and over again, which is why it would led for me to form the Coalition for Women in Journalism. As of now, I think in the last few years we've seen, especially after the Me Too conversation, we've seen a lot of the issues that women and women journalists face in the industry have come to, you know, to light. And we are having these very important conversations about equality, visibility, uh, acknowledgement, and especially abuse, how women journalists are not only invisible in the industry, but also face because of that invisibility and lack of infrastructure and understanding about how women should be treated in the industry, that we face abuse. And a lot of that abuse is coming out. And that is what is alarming us. But that abuse is there because of the, you know, the underlying invisibility and the lack of a system that was there for women in journalism. Because, you know, journalism, as many other industries, has been one of the professions where women had to work around an infrastructure that were created by men. And eventually, you know, uh, I guess that's what we always had to do. Now, eventually, we're having that conversation about women and visibility and what the industry should know and do to make women feel safer. Thank you. And uh, you briefly mentioned the coalition, which it would be good maybe for our listeners who may not be familiar with the work that you do. If you could tell us a bit more about the organization and also the press freedom reports that you put together on the monthly basis. So the Coalition for Women in Journalism was formed after years and years of thinking, years and years of frustrations in different parts of the world and seeing how women worked in everywhere around the world. You know, I I was brought up and raised in Pakistan. That's where I started my journalism career. And from there, eventually, I worked in other parts of the world, mostly South Asia, so India, Nepal, Afghanistan. And culturally, you know, I think that for me in those years, it was like, okay, well, why are women treated this way in newsrooms or in the field almost everywhere in this region? And then I traveled, I I worked in the Middle East, and then I worked in the U.S., and I saw that women were treated 
differently and there were different issues that women faced in every part of the world. And so, if you know, along these years, it was kind of surprising, a little bit frustrating, but also illuminating of the fact that women journalists are treated differently and that the issues that they face around the world are very similar. Um, there are some contextual differences in different cultures where they have more misogyny or, you know, in parts of the world where we believe there's more equality like Europe. But women journalists do face difficult challenges in every part of the world. You know, sometimes they, these are more local challenges and sometimes they're more universal, ubiquitous challenges. So the Coalition for Women in Journalism was essentially formed for mid-career women journalists for a men, as a mentorship program. And in the countries where I had worked before and had connections, I was able to launch uh, different units and or chapters, if you may. Uh, this was uh, oftentimes in partnerships with local journalists or newsrooms. And we were able to mentor, which is something we still do, is, is to mentor mid-career women journalists who face challenges after spending a couple of years in their careers and they want to stick around. And we see them as a resource for the industry. Uh, we take them up on the mentorship program and mentor them for a minimum of three. And, a, and, and then, you know, it goes on for years. Our longest mentorships have lasted a year and a half. Through those networks, we started learning around in 2018 that sometimes women journalists would face safety challenges and those incidents would go unreported. For example, there was one of our members whose house was raided by uh, the authorities. Uh, all of these things were getting unreported. So these incidents were happening and the documentation was not there because these stories were A, either not published in the media, local media or international media, or B, that there were safety challenges that women journalists face intimately in, in several parts of the world where they cannot share these things publicly. Attacks on women journalists are growing in the last two years uh, alone that we have been documenting these attacks. We've seen a rise in these last two years as well. I think that online trolling and the effects of online trolling that it has on stifling the press is also affecting how different entities who want to suppress press freedom, identifying women as the members of the press community to be attacked. Because I was having a conversation with a parliamentarian member, and he said that if we are to target the press and we go after a female reporter, it creates more momentum and it's more profitable that way if the state wants to stifle the press. If they go after the women or the prominent women in the press, it becomes easier for them to stifle because everyone else, the trolls he meant, join the chorus. And that creates the momentum that you know a lot of these authoritarian states need. When we think about the global press freedom status of, you know, how women journalists are targeted. I think that we see that kind of psychology almost everywhere. We see that women journalists are targeted, especially by the state um, in Pakistan, in India, in Mexico, uh, in Turkey. Turkey, Iran and Saudi Arabia are the three countries where the most number of women journalists and activists are in prison. There is a connection between how um, the state or an authoritarian state would see women as one of the, 
you know, accomplishments of, you know, being able to do that. Why do they see this as an accomplishment is, is because um, in a lot of misogynistic social structures in countries where you have authoritarian governments, you also have a tendency of misogyny. So when women are attacked online, or there's a misinformation campaign about a woman journalist, people are more likely to believe that uh, because in misogynistic societies, women uh, are not believed. And so when, when a state says she's a terrorist or a state says she is anti-state, then people, the public, are more likely to believe that. And I think that's one of the reasons why we are seeing this increasing rise of attacks against women journalists. You mentioned that there's a lot of documentation work that goes on with the with the coalition and the keep up with the 92 countries that you're currently reporting on. How do you prioritize or manage the daily developments in these numerous locations? And so how we essentially how we document cases is whenever every day there is an incident that happens anywhere around the world, we document that. How we do that is a, we monitor the spaces. We have networks in different parts of the world. We have WhatsApp networks of journalists for approximately in any country where we have a network, we have 200, 250 journalists in our network. Um, so a lot of the information comes organically from these networks. If, if an incident takes place, people report to us. So every morning when our team wakes up and we work in different time zones as well, we have team in Europe, in Asia uh, and Middle East and then the US. So when we wake up in the morning, we are constantly monitoring that region and Incidents come in either organically through the network or we are also on top of that, making sure that we're monitoring the space and seeing if there's an incident online that is reported. So by doing that, we identify early in the morning what are the cases to document today, and then we we report on them. How we report on them is by either being in touch with the journalists on the ground, or if they are, say, if it's an imprisonment case or a case where the journalist herself is not present, we would contact their family or friends or newsrooms and so on. And so we report the case every day. And so that's how we cover the world. Of course, while we are doing that, there are some countries which are more prominent and more regular in our coverage than others. And that includes Turkey, where on a daily basis, we report different kinds of violations, both in the newsroom, which is newsroom abuses, as well as by the state, where women journalists are either in prison, going through court trials, protesting, demonstrations, that kind of work. So Turkey is one of the regular countries. Then Pakistan is one of the regular countries where we document um, harassment of women journalists, especially by state biased media. There's a lot of misinformation campaigns against women journalists in Pakistan. We see a lot of government officials often getting involved in that by stating things, misinformation related facts or fake news against women journalists, which kind of create constantly creates a momentum uh, of uh, some sort of abuse or violence that women journalists face in the country. Mexico is another country and so on. And sometimes European countries pop up. Um, as you know, Eastern Europe was recently a focus for us because things were happening in Belarus, Hungary, Poland. So there were a lot of like demonstrations or violations in different forms, either women journalists getting fired from their jobs or being physically attacked in demonstrations and so on. 
so how countries essentially become a focus for us is if something big happens. I do want to mention that United States has been one of a very important recent focus for us because of how Donald Trump was carrying out attacks directly on, you know, against women journalists in his speeches or press conferences and how essentially his whole policy against the media that brought in that focus for us. When you talk about specific and uh, regular countries in which you report or a document from, do you feel that the international dimension of your work is sometimes at tension with the regional or maybe cultural contingencies of the countries in which you carry out the work? So that's, that's a very good question because when we started doing this work, and as a journalist myself who had worked in different parts of the world, I understand that cultural context is very important. And in some ways, the reason we have local teams or local staff members and local partners is so that we can accommodate that local cultural context. We do not want to be disrespectful to a local culture or local context, but more importantly, to be able to do our work efficiently, we need to understand and accommodate that local context, right? Which is why we have like local team members who have relationships and local newsrooms. We we every day, wherever, especially in the places where we have a great focus, every day we regularly are in touch with local journalists and local newsrooms with our local staff. In some contexts, we work also document in local languages so that we are working as efficiently as possible in the local context. Sometimes, however, where you have uh, tendencies of censorship or the local context or being too local is something that can be easily silenced. Uh, we use the international tendencies of our organization and are still able to communicate some things that are happening locally, but often censored locally. So that is also one of the reasons why we're able to do a lot of work that uh, sometimes local organizations are not able to do because of the censorship and safety risks they face. So then we are able to work from outside and be still be able to document or be able to present or say things that could get a local, you know, that could be too unsafe for a completely local-based organization. So I think that it's very important to understand how journalists work locally. And for that, we need to have relationships with them and we need to listen to them and understand what they're saying, right? So we give a lot of power to, you know, what the local cultural understanding is to that issue, especially when it comes to gender and press freedom. These are very sensitive issues. So we have to be very careful and also just be constantly listening, you know, and not just, you know, be completely attached to the story. Yeah. And it sounds like you're able to sort of marry the best of both worlds by combining the local and the international in the approach that you take with the coalition and the work that you do. I wondered if I could get also your thoughts on something a bit less specific to just women in journalism, but more to do with gender-based violence. And the use of passive voice in the language around violence against women can be problematic because it can preclude uh, any active agent so that it seems that gender-based violence just happens to women. Looking at your February Press Freedom Report, you mentioned T.J. Ducklow, White House Deputy Press Secretary, who resigned after reportedly threatening a female correspondent. And this is one of the few examples of when the individual perpetrator is named. How do you reconcile in your work uh, having to raise awareness of the victims of attacks against women with the danger of this everyday language that renders the perpetrators invisible? 
Yeah, that's a very important aspect of how careful we have to be with our work as well. So there, there, there's several elements. Um, this happens sometimes, you know, naming the perpetrator is very important, but it's also sometimes taken as it sort of like makes the story a little more individualistic rather than a massive problem. And so one of the things that you would see consistently in our work is to make that distinction. If it's an individual perpetrator that we would always, if we can identify, if we're able to identify, we would identify. But in the, but we would also always clarify that this is a greater problem. The whole point of the work we do in the advocacy program is that we're trying to say, look, these attacks are taking place every day in the regular media coverage or a lot of the gender conversation that we are still having in 2021 in the industry is around online trolling. And that is identified as a massive problem because, you know, these trolls can be visibly seen and their threats can be visibly seen and they can be documented and there's a proof. But what we are saying is that Women journalists are getting violated in offline spaces as well, in verbal attacks and physical attacks. And the whole point of doing that work is to identify this as uh, not just an individual problem in one newsroom or one country. It is something that's happening everywhere in all newsrooms, in all countries. And we want to document each and every time that happens so that we can see how many times it's happening and be able to offer that as, you know, in the larger context as well as individual context. I do think that identifying perpetrators is, is important because then we make them accountable. But one of the downsides that also, you know, co we're constantly maneuvering and struggling with is that all the other also responsible and irresponsible entities and people, uh, individuals who have tendencies of doing that, they say, oh, we are not doing it and this is their problem. Right. You know, there was this narrative that this is only something that happens under Trump's administration, that he would attack journalists. But that's not true. We saw that journalists were also and press freedom was also limited in its access under Obama administration and is so very much under the Biden administration as well. You know, the uh, you know, anyone who's covering the border story on the border in the U.S.-Mexico border knows that journalists are still not getting access. And there's all kinds of limiting of access of journalists that is still taking place. And so it was not just, well, Donald Trump used to say things and the media used to cover it. And I think that uh, we're not paying attention as much as we should uh, under the impression that Biden's uh, administration or Obama's administration was or is any any better. I think what we do at the Coalition for Women Journalism and in our um, advocacy programs, like we document every single time a violation takes place against women journalists so that we can visibly see the differences, uh, the ups and downs and the improvements as well as, you know, the regressive behaviors of the industry. Absolutely. And you've highlighted mostly problems or attacks when it has to do with uh, access to information or to be able to report. Uh, and I've also noticed that quite a bit of your work focuses on reporting on human rights violations and the cases of women journalists that are detained for longer periods of time and often after charges have been dropped against them. So speaking of responsible entities, how do justice systems affect the safety and security of women journalists? Would you say they're part of the problem or the solution? I think that this is also another great question, Mariana. Thank you. I want to say that 
in the places, especially when we talk about imprisonments, court trials, any kind of like bold abuses against women journalists. I think that these are usually happening in countries where you have the state responsible or there's state oppression or the state deliberately wants to carry out press freedom attacks, right? And in these contexts, we're seeing that, like I'm thinking of Iran, Turkey, Pakistan, India, and specifically looking at, you know, one of the specifics you mentioned in your question about court trials or imprisonments and that kind of stuff. So I think that looking at Turkey, which is where we regularly cover court trials, and when we are present there in a court proceeding, we see very misogynistic remarks by state attorneys. And, you know, we see that when the court, essentially the judge gives um, a remark, they would be also misogynistic and, and lack consideration for women you know, in general, even though women are in a lot of these societies, women are supposed to be respected, you know, in the, uh, Pakistan, Muslim country, Turkey, Muslim country, Iran, Muslim country, right? So we see that they deliberately use verbiage that is gendered um, just to tease women. One of the examples I would give you was in Turkey recently, a couple of months ago, they had, uh, without trial, have put two women journalists in male prisons. And they have said that they have done that because the uh, women prisons are too full. Uh, which, uh, you know, from our sources and the lawyers that we're in touch with, it's not true. And then these women are put into male prisons. They are not in, in the winter cold of December. They are not allowed to wear their sweaters because the sweater color of their sweater is not allowed. And so these kind of things that are like to tease them to violate their dignity and their sense of freedom and independence, right? Um, these are very, very personal attacks that we are seeing. And I think that these, a lot of times we notice and we feel that these courtrooms and these judges and these abusers of freedoms and gender are essentially doing a very careful job of getting to the, you know, you know hitting the soul of the individual because that is what destroys their sense of freedom and liberty. So I think that, uh, you know, when we notice and document attacks against women journalists in, in several countries, we see that it's beyond just an attack on press freedom. It's also because it is an attack on press freedom. And then it goes way beyond that. And, and it sort of enters a personal, their personal spaces as well and personally abuses them. I think you've just made a really good point also about the importance of identity and the, the individual aspect of being a journalist or a women journalist in this case. And I've noticed that the U.S. Uh, has cropped up quite a bit in your analysis so far. And I thought it would be quite timely uh, in the wake of the recent Atlanta Spash mass shooting in the U.S. to talk maybe a bit about the increase in Asian hate crimes since the beginning of the pandemic, which is being widely reported on. So in a relevant report, the coalition highlighted, quote, the racist attitudes Asian American women journalists were subjected to by right wing groups. So the specific mention to the political side of it, would you say that in this context, the reporting by women journalists can become politicized because of their identity? Absolutely. And I think it has happened in many parts of the world and in many, many contexts. This being one of the most recent ones happening in the United States, I think race has been used against women in many parts of the world. I would just quickly, you know, use an example of Dalit journalists 
in India, when Dalit women journalists have been reporting in India, this has always happened. It has always been politicized by the state, also by the media. Media itself as an industry is rather ignorant when it comes to race and being sensitive. Uh, The reason I think say if a leader like Donald Trump would say this is a Chinese virus, you know, if he would it would say the, the word Chinese or Asian and say the virus, he associates a danger to the people, to a certain community. And the media covers it irresponsibly. I think that if most people and the people believe in it or people follow what a leader says is only because the media is also not covering it responsibly, right? The whole uh, facade about objective journalism, you know, I think journalism is to communicate information to the public. And I think in essence, objectivity does mean to explain, which the media often doesn't do. So I think the media is equally responsible for these, these dynamics. In the most recent attack that we covered, and after that, we sort of did a long feature, you know, showing how Asian women journalists have been consistently attacked under the Trump administration. We saw that Asian women journalists, when they were covering the White House, they were attacked by Donald Trump directly, as well as by his staff. We have seen consistently that Asian women journalists are invisible in the media. I mean, they're, they are there and they work in the industry and they are doing amazing work. But their work is not recognized and visible as much. This is a power dynamic. So when women journalists for their identity or their gender are not recognized, what happens? They're invisible. And so what happens is that the work that they're doing becomes invisible. Then they're not acknowledged for their work. This is a power dynamic. Um, And so when they're not acknowledged for their work, then when they do get attacked and something happens to them, that also becomes invisible. I do want to say that I think the feature um, that we've done also shows how many times women, Asian women journalists have been attacked, uh, which is kind of, it's a phenomena. And that is not something that is widely understood in the media, right? Uh, And why is that? That also goes back into the invisibility that some communities, you know, have to face. We are having this conversation after, you know, a deadly attack. Uh, on the Asian community. And I would say that this kind of invisibility is happening in a lot of other communities as well. And I think the media is still not doing a great job in accommodating and understanding all races and all genders and um, all issues and being able to report on it efficiently. Sounds to me like the, the most important aspects of these conversations that you are having go all the way from invisibility to documentation and then recognition. So in the context of this process, If we were to sit down, let's say, in 10 years' time, what changes would you like to be able to highlight in the industry? And if this might induce a more utopian answer, what changes do you realistically expect and would classes achievement if they were attained within the next decade? Excellent. I would say we can do things immediately in the next year or so. And these are simple steps. I think we need to take simple steps. We have enough context, enough lessons that we have learned in the last few years. And I would say that, A, that newsrooms need to adopt a policy to be inclusive, which would begin from within. I think that newsrooms need to just pay attention. I think if we could start doing one thing that is paying attention, what's happening within our newsrooms, how we are covering the stories, pay attention to stories, pay attention to race, pay attention to gender, and find ways that will 
you know, accommodate the missing parts, you know, the, the loopholes, fill those loopholes by paying attention. Paying attention means you identify the problem in your own newsroom. You identify uh, the problem in your own coverage of, you know, society, community, democracy, countries, world, etc. And then you fill that problem. I think um, most new, many newsrooms are facing similar problems, but many newsrooms have their own individual problems. And even though we are having this massive conversation around the world about gender, equality, race, etc., etc., I think that the real effort of accommodating and solving those problems is not being made. I think by just having the conversation, you know, a lot of the media thinks that we've done this by having a conversation, by having panel conversations, by doing a coverage, but they don't want to solve problems from within their own institutions. And I think that is key to solving the problems. So, you know, from my perspective, I think the solution is rather simple, is a pay attention identify the issues and solve them. Do whatever it needs to solve those problems. Well, I think I'll end it on this very practical note. Thank you so much for joining me, Kiran. Thank you too, Mariana. So that's it for this episode of Undercurrents. We hope you enjoyed listening. If you're a fan, please subscribe and leave a review on whichever podcast app or platform you're using. It makes our podcast much easier for others to find. So now that's out of the way, then I must ask, how was it to interview to get to spend some time, maybe not in the same room, but at least in the same screen as Angela Saini? Yeah, thanks, Mariana. It was a really, really fun interview. I enjoyed it so much. You've been a long-standing fan of, of Angela's and, and it was your idea to do the interview. And I'm so glad that you suggested it because it was it was really interesting. And, and I sort of got carried away and I think it went on a bit longer than I thought it would. But yeah, I hope that people found it interesting. So I just want to end this episode with a couple of words for Keith Burnett, the outgoing Director of Communications at Chatham House, mine and Mariana's boss. Keith has been at the Royal Institute of International Affairs for 19 years. And when he started, the communications team was like two people. And now it's grown to over 20 and it's encompassed all of these new sort of multimedia formats, digital formats. It's taken on, like, if you think about what comms involved in 2001 compared to today, it's crazy. Like social media didn't even exist. And Keith is also the person who set the starting gun going on undercurrents as well, of course, back in 2018. Maybe he regrets it now. I don't know. <laughs> I try not to ask him about it because I'm worried he's going to cancel us. <laughs> but he's not cancelled us yet. <laughs> I should probably just say for the record, uh, thanks very much, Keith, for, for your faith in the podcast and for all the work that we do in comms. And it's been a real pleasure to work with you. Mariana, I don't know if you want to add anything about Keith. Yeah, absolutely. I only managed to work with Keith very briefly. Although I joined about a year ago, I was only in the office for a total of two weeks. Uh, and then we sort of went into lockdown. But I know that Keith was instrumental in the revamping that the World Today magazine went through uh, when Alan joined 10 years ago. So it's really good to be able to still work and uh, enjoy the fruits of their labor until now because the magazine is still in such a good shape and Keith is still very much connected and uh, providing support with our efforts to keep the magazine going. So yes, thank you, Keith, and best of luck. Absolutely, best of luck. And that really is it for this episode. Uh, thanks for joining us. 
as Mariana said, please leave us a review or subscribe. And if you want to hear more about Chatham House's wider work, then check out our website, chathamhouse.org, or follow us on Twitter at Chatham House. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with some new interviews. Until then, thanks very much for listening. Thank you.